You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. But I think there's some truth to it. I haven't pondered enough to be gripped by it personally yet. Well, that twinkling is when he comes back. Sanctification is a slow, gradual, long-term process now. Growth is slow. I don't believe in twinkling changes until the glorification change. Um, you look very carefully sometime at um, um, Exodus 23. I don't have my Bible with me, but Exodus 23, the Lord says that, uh, talking about the Israelites going into Canaan, and he says, your conquering of the enemies will be slow. In Deuteronomy 9, he says, you will conquer the enemies quickly which is a bit of a contradiction. But you look at, the two, at those two passages and you have different enemies being conquered. And the notion is that um, the enemies that are talked about in Exodus 23, where the, where the, the victories will be slow and gradual, are, are the enemies which the Israelites were less afraid of in Numbers 14 when the spies went over and said, we got some problems over there, the Hittites and the Jebusites and all those. Um, and the Lord says, your, your victory over the lesser enemies will be slow. But then in Deuteronomy 9, the sons of Anak, which were the giants that really scared those ten faithless spies, your victory there will be quick, but look at the way it actually happened when they got into Canaan and Joshua. The victory over the lesser enemies took seven years before they ever took on the big one. The issue, it seems to me, is that big problems are uh, big problems can be conquered in a day after years of wrestling with small ones. I do not believe in instant sanctification or entire sanctification. I believe in gradual, slow, progressive sanctification. I believe in instant glorification. You know, and I'm looking forward to that. Glorify himself. Have, have maximum growth. Yeah. I remember asking that question of myself. You know, God, you could make it all better now. Why, why don't you? You know? Couldn't you do that? Well, why don't you do it? Not going to do it. You know, and I say, well, you don't make a whole lot of sense. It seems to me that before we try to explain that, we have to begin with the presupposition of confidence in his goodness. Once that's established, then we can kind of have fun with explanations, but we can't, we can't require ourselves to have final explanations which fully satisfy us because the presupposition is the goodness of God. But once you have that as a foundation, then I'm willing to talk about the fact that God's essential purpose is to bring glory to himself and that he brings glory to himself by, by taking me and, and exhibiting... And, and I, th I think he enjoys my faith. I think he enjoys me when in the middle of, of hopeless misery I turn to him and say, you're good and keep on trucking. I think he enjoys that, and he's arranged everything for his enjoyment, which seems rather inappropriate for anybody except him. And, and it is, but not for him, it's not. Sort of an analogy in the natural world about that, where a monkey can be born and mature within about a year, it takes us 18, 20, 25 years. 30, 35, 40, yeah. <laughs> it seems like the, the analogy of spiritual growth, too. It yeah. It's a slow process, that's right. And we, we, we learn the lessons of dependency. And then maturity develops when the, lesson of, when the lesson of dependency is not transcendent, but learned. Not overcome, but learned. Think about the function of loneliness. Why don't you think about the function of loneliness over a five-minute break? <laughs> loneliness. We've already made a comment that... Um, Tom in the back helped us to see that loneliness can either be constructive or destructive. 
can be either one. How, tell me how loneliness can be protective. Let's go over that again just for a moment, just to kind of be clear on that. It's already been said, but let's take a look at it. How, how is it that loneliness can sometimes be something which we, in one sense, kind of want to hang on to and can somehow use? How does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Thank you for closing the door so I don't lose my mind. All right, other thoughts? That's helpful. Other thoughts? How is loneliness protective? How do you mean? Loneliness sometimes is to be preferred to disappointment. See, God, God really does call us to involvement. And, and we just find so many ways to avoid involvement. Um, I'll be mentioning this, I think, uh, this evening or tomorrow morning, but let me just mention it briefly now. In Ephesians 4, where we're told to walk worthy of our calling. What's our calling? You look back at Ephesians 1, 18, where we talked we talked about the hope of our calling and the riches of our inheritance and the power that is going to get us to the inheritance. Um, that, that somehow we have what it takes, we have all that it takes to uh, to to indicate that 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 God has done all that our souls long for. Then he goes on in, in Ephesians 4 when he says, "Walk worthy of the calling." The calling being that. That, um, that the hope is coming up, that we're going to be eternally satisfied, that the riches are going to take place in the community. Because the phrase there is the riches of inheritance among the saints. Lovely phrase. Heaven will be community. And, um, and then the, the power that's going to make it happen is all there. To walk worthy of the calling, it then talks about... Um, 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 oh, fiddlesticks. Somebody quoted to me. Ephesians 4.2. Um, walk worthy of the calling... Uh, honoring the unity, the, the, the unity of, the, of, the, of the Spirit. He goes on to talk about that. Now, if I'm going to honor the unity of the Spirit, if I'm going to move in an honoring way of the unity of the body of Christ, what does that eliminate? Distancing, right? To honor unity means to, to move towards as opposed to distance. What uh, Distancing is a synonym for self-protection. Same thing as men. So to walk worthy of the calling means you don't self-protect. And then it goes on to say, every member giving, you know, every member properly functioning. So everything that I have, I'm going to make available to you. Whatever you have, you'd make available to me. But I'm scared to do that. You might not like what I have. I don't want to be all that close to you. You might not enjoy me that much. And I want to be enjoyed. So I'll keep whatever distance I think you might enjoy. You see? I'll get to know you as a public speaker, but don't you dare get to know me personally, because as a public speaker, I can choose what questions I respond to, I can choose my stories, I can choose my persona, I can choose all kinds of things when I stand behind a lectern. But don't get to know me personally, because I know what you think of me. A whole lot of speakers hide behind pulpits. They never get close. Never get close. So loneliness can serve a very protective function, which is, a, which is dishonoring to the worthy walk that we're called to be involved with. 
or loneliness really can have a deepening function. Are we very clear on the point that loneliness must be accepted as inevitable? And then to say that this inevitable experience of loneliness can be turned into something productive. I don't believe it should be our business to somehow eliminate loneliness from our lives. Now, there are certain kinds of loneliness that can be eliminated or at least minimized, and that's fine. One of the, one of the biggest perversions of what I teach that every time I hear I just cringe is when somebody says to a lonely person, you don't need to be lonely because all you need is in Christ. That just produces guilt and frustration, and people say, well, if all you need is in Christ, I must be a spiritual pygmy, I must have no faith. Then they go read the Bible for another two years and then say it hasn't helped. And All that we need for what is what needs to be added to that little formula. Um, all that we need to persevere is in Christ. Not all that we need to feel good at any given time. For the moment before the Lord comes back again, that's not there in Christ. Did our Lord feel good all the time in his earthly sojourn? He was a man of sorrows. Now, is that incompatible with love? No, of course not. Therefore, the, 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 the spiritually mature Christian is experiencing a variety of emotions, many of which are, are negative in the sense of being unpleasant. But, but unpleasant emotions need not be incompatible with love. And our Lord experienced unpleasant emotions. He experienced anguish. Strong words are used as he went to the garden. But never was his emotion incompatible with love. Therefore, I need to say that when I have negative emotions like loneliness, I shouldn't somehow apologize to God for being lonely and say that I wish I had more faith and I wouldn't be lonely. That's not true. But I can turn that loneliness into a productive experience that is that will be compatible and energizing of more compassion. Loneliness needs to be productive. But in order for it to be productive, it first must be accepted as opposed to fought. Boy, how many people have fought with their loneliness, just trying to get rid of it by some prayer technique or some statement of faith or some formula of prayer of repentance or something. This hadn't worked. You end up giving up on prayer, you know. There's a deepening opportunity in loneliness. I hope that you're, when you leave the seminar, you're going away. I don't mean just this one afternoon, but the whole week. I hope you're going away with several thoughts in your mind. And, and, and one of the thoughts that I, I, I'd like to think some of you are going to go away with is the word integrity. And, and when I use the word integrity, what I mean by it is a commitment to face everything, to deny nothing. And I believe that's the way to make loneliness productive. Not to fight loneliness as an enemy, to conquer to realize it will be conquered someday because loneliness is a result of the fall. And the Lord will one day entirely undo the effects of the fall. And he'll restore everything to better than Eden ever was. Because in Eden there was a possibility of failure and heaven will be none. So we'll do better than Eden. But we're just not there yet. And, um, and, and, and since that's true, I can, I, I can face whatever's going on. And that's integrity. And when I, rather than fight loneliness and try to overcome loneliness, knowing it will be overcome someday, but not yet, rather than overcoming loneliness, I simply allow myself to enter into it. How should you deal with grief? Fight it, try to get over it, surround the casket with flowers so you pretend that death is pretty? I have no objection to flowers at funerals, don't misunderstand me. They can be a symbol of the fact that death is not pretty, but death is conquered. And the sting is gone. But the sadness remains. But so often the flower is nothing more than a disguise as opposed to a symbol of the hope. 
And um, I rather think that grief, rather than being fought, should be entered into. As I believe everything should be entered into, including loneliness. And when you feel lonely, don't try to get rid of it or blunt the impact of it or pretend you're not. But I suggest when you feel those pangs of loneliness, go for a walk and cry your eyes out. Feel it. Enter into it. My definition of strength is face it, feel it. And then do it, whatever's right. And keep at it, no matter how bad it hurts. There's strength for you. Face it, feel it, do it, and keep at it. But the first part of strength is face it and feel it. You've heard my devotional on that from Nehemiah, where Nehemiah in chapter 1 heard how bad things were going in Jerusalem. And he went and he sat down and he wept as he contemplated how bad things were in Jerusalem. My people are in reproach. Now, what do we hear when somebody talks about a need somewhere? Somebody we hear about a need, we see people that are hurting terribly, and right away our first thought is, what can we do? That shouldn't be our first thought. Our first thought should be, let me enter into how sad that situation is. Then in your sadness, go do something. Now you'll be doing it with compassion as opposed to a program. Anybody able to give testimony to the deepening effect of loneliness? Rather than my just yapping about it? Is that a reality or is that just kind of a nice cliche that I have in a notebook in a seminar? Anybody able to give testimony to that? And don't do it if you can't. Only say what you can say from your heart. Maybe you can't. Some of you can. If you can't, don't feel terrible. Tim? the phrase bittersweet it's kind of both isn't it yeah yeah you will thought the hardest command in scripture to obey is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing over what you don't have <clears throat> and to be able to rejoice with her and to say that it really is good that I'm glad for that but at the same time to experience the fact that it's not happening with you boy in that heart in that heart what you do with that yeah with that pain you rejoice with her that's mature you felt pain that's mature what did you do with the loneliness that it didn't happen to you, what your soul longs for, legitimately? I hope you hear the wisdom in that simple sentence. Just accepted it. Couldn't do anything, anything about it, so I kept going. I remember a woman I was talking to whose husband 
um, hadn't talked to her literally for months, and I mean literally. He finally came in for counseling, and he sat through a whole session, didn't say a word. He just sat there stone-faced. I didn't know if he was psychotic or dead, or I just didn't know what was happening. <laughs> but it literally is true that at the dinner table, I, I said to her, I said, you can't mean he doesn't literally talk. And she said, in the course of a day, maybe five words come out of his mouth, things like, pass the salt, the dinner table. And that was literally true. In the middle of that happening, her daughter went off to live with a boy. This is a Christian woman. Her son got on drugs, and her other boy dropped out of college, all within a framework of, oh, six, eight, ten months, whatever, while her husband was doing nothing for her. And I remember one time just looking at her face, and her face just took on such a grotesque quality of pain. I mean, she just became absolutely ugly. And her sentence was, what do I do with the pain? You know, you, you want to get a big pill and just stick it in her mouth where she'll feel better. Don't you? You want to just kind of put on a happy face. I'll tell you, I really believe that we are commanded to rejoice as a choice. And I believe that there's some validity to argue that happiness is a choice, as the book title suggests. But I believe that if you leave it at that, you, you, you miss a lot. What are you going to tell that lady? Choose to be happy. See how misleading that is? I'm not saying that's what the book says, but that, that title, I think, can be misleading. What, what must you do with that? What do you do with the pain? The point is, your, your number one priority when you're in pain is always what, naturally? Get out of it. And the Lord just has the craziest idea, it seems to me. <laughs> And his idea really is blessed or happy are the, what's the first of the Beatitudes? The poor in spirit. And the word there is total poverty. And the idea is, I don't have any resources to make life come. So therefore, what's my option? I can't do anything about it. I can't go recapture the woman who's left me. I can't bring back from the dead the boy that's been killed. I simply can't do it. Now, what do you do? You enter into that fact. You feel it deeply. You just grieve. You stay there in your grief, but you don't let your grief control you. What does that mean? It means you go brush your teeth. It means you don't stop flossing. You know, what does it matter if I have cavities now? I haven't got a wife. That's not valid. What does it matter if I, you know, eat healthy now? I'll tell you, my, my, one of my, this will sound a little strange, but one of my real measures of how I'm doing spiritually is whether, whether I take care of little tiny details in my life. And I literally mean things like flossing. Because when I'm depressed, who cares? You know? Or things like exercising. You know, doing sit-ups. I did sit-ups last night in our room. I felt real spiritual. <laughs> but, but, but I'll tell you, for me, when it's, when it's a matter of exercising or going for a walk for exercise sake or eating a little more carefully or flossing my teeth and all those little everyday things, as I do it, it's a way of affirming that life is worth living in spite of whatever. Why is it worth living? When everything's bad, the only reason it's worth living is because of the hope. If the hope is controlling, you floss your teeth. That really isn't as silly as it sounds. Yeah? Yeah, right. Really Skip the first part. Yeah. 
to sit down and maybe write to journal what I'm really going through. Yeah. And yet, what I've been saying is that's what we really need to do. Oh, I, I, yeah. I think Gordon's book, In Ordering Your Private World, where he talks about things along that line. When he was pastor in Lexington, he had a little place out in the woods somewhere where he and his wife took a day off and just sat a day a week. Now, it didn't happen every week, obviously. But that was his commitment, and he came close. And I read a recent article by Gordon MacDonald, and where was it? Where's it today? Where he talks about his busyness, and that really has become a problem for him. And he's working at ordering his private world, you know? Um, um, and I think the point is, he's highlighting something which you've just said, that, yeah, I don't think you're going to make it in a real deep, growing sense unless you do take time, you know, the old cliche, take time for the important, not just for the urgent. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. It's, yeah, there's no question about that. And, and the thing that, that kind of bugs me is as we say that, it all sounds so obvious, but how, how many of us are kind of living it? Um, yeah, it is, because we're going to get beaten down by our community. Yeah, it's true. What's the proper response to loneliness? Some obvious thoughts that I would suggest that is appropriate in loneliness, not to make it your purpose to end it, but your purpose, or at least your desire, to be supported through it by the Lord ultimately. But if He provides a body of people to help in supporting our in supporting us through our loneliness, that's great. My concern in this last little portion that I want to chat about here and interact with you about is that so much of what is called fellowship doesn't do a thing for our loneliness in terms of supporting us. I'm not looking for relief from it now. I'm looking for somehow support so that it doesn't become an unbearable burden. Um, and it just seems to me that so much of our, our, of our what we call fellowship isn't, isn't doing much of that. And I just kind of jotted down some very obvious thoughts just for our discussion that sometimes our fellowship or our getting with people kind of a thing is built on the level of common interest. And nothing's wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with if you're both interested in the and how Houston just beat L.A. and how they're going to take Boston in seven. Um, you know, if you're interested in that and you have a common interest, that's fine. And as you chat about that, that's okay. You have a warm time just chatting about Houston one. You know, it's fun. I have no problem with that. But it sure won't do a thing for loneliness. It'll feel good for a few minutes, and that's legitimate. But if that's all you have, that's terrible. Or in the level of personality. Some folks are dissimilar, you know. My wife and I have often chatted about how Really, I think by the, just the grace of God, uh, we've been matched up. We're just very similar. We really laugh at the same kind of things and the same kind of interests, and um, you know, and that's just kind of nice. I like having a woman that we're that I'm similar to, in in lots of ways. We have some differences. She thinks you know how homes should be neat and all that sort of thing. <laughs> People shouldn't spill food in their ties. She fails to see the character of that. <laughs> but um, except for a few minor differences, where she's growing. Um, <laughs> We're, we're pretty similar, and, and that's nice. Some of you don't have that. I do. Um, and there's a certain fellowship at the level of similarity of personality, same kind of humor. Dan and I are just a whole, very much alike. Our backgrounds are just as different as night and day. He was raised Unitarian. I was raised Plymouth Brethren. There's a difference. <laughs> you know, you all just heard the stories of the seminar. You know, he was, he was selling drugs when I was going to Bible studies. Worst thing I ever did was sneak out to a drive-in movie. You know? I mean, that was, to me, I felt so guilty about that. 
I, I cut a meeting, a Sunday evening service, took Rachel out to a drive-in movie. And we kissed. <laughs> I tell Dan that, and he laughs like that. He says, I'm going to tell you what I did. <laughs> we're different. But in lots of ways, we're very similar. We just enjoy each other. Similar personalities, and so we have a lot of fellowship, a lot of our personality. We like tennis. We like the same kind of humor. So we have a lot of good fellowship on that basis. I'm not sure if I want the word fellowship for there. Because the word koinonia, if used in the biblical sense, is something, something very deep that's shared. It really is the shared life in Christ is the idea of it. I get you down to the last two levels that I'm talking about here. One is conviction and commitment. And I think a lot of us stop at that level. A lot of us have relationships at that level, and I think that's important and good. A friend of mine at seminary did a large study on the word koinonia and the whole idea of fellowship in both Testaments, particularly the New. And his conclusion um, was that the essence of the whole thing is... Um, is, is the idea of we're both in the boat, you're pulling one oar and I'm pulling the other, and we're both getting there by mutual effort. Now, that has the idea then of kind of shared commitment and shared conviction that's involved, but doesn't take it down to the core of the meaning. It's part of it. It's important. You know, we can have fellowship in a group like this. I suppose that in a week like this, folks that are adamantly non-believers would just really be uncomfortable. And I think that's kind of appropriate. You know? Um... That isn't to say that uh, we, we shouldn't be welcoming if an unbeliever were to move into our midst. I hate to tell him to leave. I'd like to have him see that maybe we got something attractive and he might want to trust the Savior. But, but there'd be a sense in which he'd be an outsider. Because he is. He's not part of the family. Now, that's a reality. We have certain convictions and commitments which unite us as the body of Christ. There's no question of that. But I want to suggest that there's a deeper level of fellowship which if you don't go to this last level, this fourth level, and don't hear anything big about these four levels, just kind of made it up to organize some thoughts here. But if you don't go to that fourth level, it seems to me that you have some, some real problems. And the major problem that you have, until you go to that fourth level, is the first three we often use to avoid the fourth. The fourth is risky and difficult, costly, hard to get into. If you have the fourth, the first three can be legitimate. If you don't have the fourth, the first three strikes me as illegitimate. What's the last? This last one. The idea of purpose and pain. How do you all feel towards Mike and Janine? Feel kind of warm towards them in some ways? Why? You don't even know them. Yeah. Courage, and what defines the courage there? Why would you use the word courage? I think many would use the word courage. I sure would. Yeah. Vulnerable about? Yeah, about their pain. Hear the point? Now, when, when you hear us kind of share in this little group here, and we don't know each other, most of us, but you hear somebody say, yeah, I've been divorced and it hurt. You hear somebody else say, I went to a retreat where the family used to be, and now it's not. And that was too much. I couldn't, I just couldn't stand it anymore. Now, you look at that person, how do you feel towards them? Don't you feel a little closer somehow, a little more intimate? Isn't there a fellowship that comes from shared loneliness? Shared hurt? Shared pain? Now, the pain that's necessary for Christians, I mentioned this morning in the devotional, is the pain of groaning. I can't share with you the pain of a wife that's left me. Two brothers in the room at least can. I don't know what that's like. So therefore, how can we have fellowship? I don't know what he's talking about. And I really don't. I have a good friend who struggled with homosexuality. He's not involved in the sin of it. But there are temptations in that direction. I have heterosexual temptations. 
I can relate at that level, but I don't know what it's like to, to have to fight down the urge of homosexual temptations. He's doing real well, real, real well. He's not getting it at all, and the, and the urges are getting less and less strong, and that's neat to watch God work in his life. But I don't know what he's talking about in terms of being attracted to some other man. So the pain of his struggle kind of different. I don't understand. Like the pain of losing a wife to divorce. But I can groan at a level that he can groan. You see, groaning unites us. It's a basis for fellowship. We who have the first fruits groan. Isn't that what he says? In Romans 8? We who have the first fruits groan. Janine and Mike were doing a little bit of groaning in front of us. Now about some details that might not apply to all of us. But the notion that Janine just says, there's a part of me that hasn't been touched. Anybody not relate to that? You know, Mike's saying, I'm not sure what it means to move towards somebody else, in this case my wife, with the real thrill of being able to touch deeply. Any guy in the room not able to relate to that? Whether you're single or married? If you're married, maybe a little easier, but single, same. The idea of touching somebody else deeply. We can relate to the groaning of the fact that in our, in our world where we long for relationship, no relationship is what it should be, and that makes me groan. When we're open about our groaning, it produces the kind of fellowship which strengthens, is what I want to suggest. And hear me again, sound negative. How often does that happen in the Christian community? Isn't the emphasis on, I'm not groaning, I'm joyful? Why can't the emphasis be on, of course I'm joyful, or maybe I have no idea what the word joy means right now, but can you take me where I am? If where you are is full of joy, fantastic, share. This lady here was just sharing with us about the fact that the Lord has met her in certain ways where he's gone beyond his word and she's experienced him in ways that, that go beyond the word. And our, my reaction is great. Anybody feel a pressure to be able to say the same thing or to outdoor? That'd be horrible. What you ought to say is, I'm not there or I'm there and I'm ahead of her. That's fine. And wherever you are, you're acceptable to the Lord, just not to other Christians. Therefore, our communities need to be the kind of communities which accept people who groan. And they're not, very often. But the second thing is, not only should our communities be places which accept people which groan, but real fellowship is not just built on pain, it's built on common purpose. Let's just not sit around and commiserate on how miserable we are. Let's rather say, yeah, relationships are imperfect, but let's have a common purpose that comes from repentance where I know where life is. I've changed my mind. Life is not in broken cisterns. Life is not in self-protection. Life is in Christ. Now, when I'm with brothers and sisters who understand pain but are pursuing the answers in Christ, I have fellowship. When I'm with brothers and sisters who pretend that the pain isn't much, then their pursuit of the Lord is not rich and I'm not drawn. Do you see? Now, again, I don't want to suggest that every time we get together, we should talk about our problems. I think it's fine to get together and have a good old hymn sing. And sing loud and sing He Lives and sing at the top of your lungs and have a good time. I'm all for it. I think it's great to have church softball leagues. I'm all for it. Great to have Sunday school contests where the kids bring all the friends and get prizes. And I think all that's super. Choirs that sing wonderful hymns. I'm all for it. Don't hear me knocking any of that. But hear me say that in the normal functioning of the community of God's people... There needs to be, in addition to all those very appropriate things, which remind us of the reason for joy. The heaven's coming up, and we do have good times, and it is fun, and the mountains are pretty, and the sun's shining. It's a great day. In addition to all that, do we, do we have opportunity to talk about other things as well? That's the question. Not that it's a 24-hour-a-day preoccupation. You know, you all have people in your churches that all they want to do is tell you how miserable they are. 
And if they heard this talk, they might say, see, I'm really open for fellowship. You're not. Now, I don't mean that, for goodness sakes. That gets old, real old. And it's also self-protection. It's just manipulative pull. That's all it is. But you get a Bible study where you have small... And by the way, this cannot happen outside of small groups. And churches without provision for small group meaningful interaction, I don't believe, can experience fellowship in the richest sense at all. It just can't be. What a community of God's people really could be. You know, if I had taught this four years ago, I don't think I'd be teaching it with much hope. Because it really has been within the last four years since our program at Grace that I think I've understood a little bit about the, about the, about the potential for a community. It sure is imperfect. We have a number of our grads from our program, a couple in the room. And, um, and I'll tell you, the people that I've been sitting in what we call labs back of the program with, people who I've, seen, who I've seen struggle and move on, they're the ones that when I see them, I feel a certain special warmth. We have our tensions, we have our difficulties, we get mad at each other. Sure isn't perfect. But there's a, there's a certain something that I just enjoy, and it means a lot to me. A community of God's people could really function in a way that could support us in our loneliness. Here are the essential points. Loneliness is inevitable, so don't fight it. Loneliness is inevitable. Don't fight it. And don't use my cliche that all, all that we need is in Christ, and we can be secure and significant in Christ. Don't use that cliche to somehow argue against the reality of loneliness. It's there. Oh, I know. And I apologize. A lot of folks have had a thrown in their face. Well, I heard what Crabbe said. All we need is in Christ. Can you say if it's in Christ? Well, I think that's true, but not the way it's heard. Go ahead and hurt. It's okay to hurt. It really is. It's okay to hurt. So accept your hurt. Accept your pain. The day is coming when you're not going to. It just isn't tomorrow. Accept your hurt. If Christ is really who he claims to be, he's worth pursuing. Enter your loneliness in such a way that it's productive as opposed to destructive. Don't let your loneliness keep you at a distance from people. Move towards people. Listen, you who have been burned, go get burned again, or at least risk it. Go get burned again, or at least risk it. Now, I don't mean go be a fool. Don't pick some woman who you know is going to burn you and say, I'm going to marry her so I can get spiritual. <laughs> that's kind of dumb. That's not healthy. That's stupid. You know, I mean, I can't think of any woman I want to be married to but my wife. That's really the truth. A lot of nice ladies I know. Nice, nice being with them, but uh, my thought now, if my wife is taken by the Lord, I think uh, widowerhood sounds pretty good to me. Maybe I'll change my mind when that happens, if it does. But for goodness sakes, don't, um, don't back away from people just because they're going to hurt you. That's the name of the game in all of our relationships. That's what we do. What about situations where you really sense that if you encourage that, hope is not at the point of being willing to make it productive? Because that would almost be their self-pity. And I've sensed that with people that they don't want to make it productive. Whatever's happening becomes the topic. You know, I would simply tell the person, that's how I read you right now. That's my hypothesis, that for me to try to help you make your loneliness productive is not what you want. You really want to continue using your loneliness to maintain a certain self-pitying distance. I think that's sinful. I think you're robbing me of love. I think you're robbing the body of you. I think you're being self-centered and wrong. 
Can we talk about that? You know, here's a very simple principle. Whatever's happening becomes a topic. As I counsel with Mike and Janine, numbers of times I would say, tell me what's happening inside of you now. Now, I knew where I was hoping they'd be. Janine threw me from a loop a number of times. Remember the time when I said, um, oh, what did I say? You know, how do you feel filled, uh, greatly filled? And then I said, you know, you feel more. And my thought, she was really was going to say, you know, greatly, greatly filled. And she said, scared. It was like, oh, switch gears. <laughs> you know, whatever's there becomes a topic. So if a person, as you're interacting with them and trying to help them with their loneliness, if, if, if the pull that you sense is, I don't want to move in that direction, I kind of like being miserable, it's better than the opposite. It's better than the opposite of somehow going into relationships and getting disappointed again. I'd rather be miserable from a distance. If that's what you think is happening, you just point it out. Isn't that what love requires? Isn't that truthing in love? I think that's what it means, among other things. Isn't that nice? What a testimony. Thank you for that. That's good. Yeah. You know, it really... Where's the loneliest place going to be? Hell. Isn't that right? Now, what's the point? Hell is for those people who eternally say no to God. Now, I can experience a little bit of that now as a believer. Well, your point's so well taken. I'm just saying back to you, which you've already said better than I'm doing, because it came out of your heart, and I'm just reciting back to you. But the notion of saying no to God, yeah, that's lonely. You know something's terribly wrong on the inside. You say yes to God, and, and something does change. There's now the potential for joy. And yet, it doesn't erase the loneliness, as, which has been a large point throughout the whole hour here, but it sure do make a difference. Appreciate that very much.
That's good. What a healthy point on which to close. Our time is about gone. But what a healthy point on which to close that our Lord longs to. And that he's, he's, he's weeping with you. He tells us to weep with those who weep. Well, he models that. You have in Isaiah 30 somewhere where it talks about the Lord longs to bless. Isaiah 40, somewhere, 42, I think it is, where it says that the Lord, as he looks down at his people and all their sinfulness... And he talks about coming back to straighten the whole mess up to make everything perfect. He compares himself to a woman in, who's, who, who's pregnant and about to give birth. And he says, I'm like a woman panting. I'm ready to deliver. You know, what he's saying is, I want to get down and make it happen. My timetable is such, but understand, I long to make everything just right. There really is deep longing. And part of this is the fellowship of his sufferings as he wept over Jerusalem, wept at Lazarus' tomb, you know. Lazarus' tomb, when he, Jesus wept, there's an angry tone to the word weeping there. The Greek has an idea of anger to it to some degree. And the notion of this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I weep over it. And, and to share in his fellowship is to, is to enter into the fact that we live in a world where the fall has just done a royal job of messing things up. And he don't like it any better than we do. C.S. Lewis in his Narnia series, where is it, where somebody, some youngster is concerned about a mother who's dying and who's in pain and and Aslan hasn't come along to take care of it. And just was kind of yelling at Aslan all the time and, and his in prayers and was saying that, uh, you know, you don't care, you don't care, you don't care. And then he met Aslan and he looked in Aslan's eyes and saw a tear. And Aslan was weeping as much as he was, if not more. But it was part of a good plan. Part of a good plan. Let's pray as we stop. Father, draw us all uh, just a little bit closer to you because of this. Um... And help us to realize as we uh, talk with other people that we sure haven't learned a single technique this afternoon. We haven't thought about nice words to say. But Father, help us to understand a perspective that's true. That loneliness is a, really is something which is in the hearts of all to at least some degree. And that that's not to be fought, that's to be entered. And help us to understand that as a way to move towards you. Help that to be more than cliché. Father, it's so easy to make spiritual sentences into cliché. Uh, deliver us from that, but help us not to run from truths just because they sound rather ordinary and cliche sometimes. Help us to enter into the truth of them. Um, a couple of folks that are really hurting now uh, minister in ways that I wouldn't have the sensitivity to um, or the ability to. Somehow you do that. I don't understand it, but you do. Move in ways that you know are good. Thank you that we have the confidence that that really is a promise that you will move in each of our lives. And right now you're being good to us. Some are rejoicing in your goodness because of happy marriages. Some are hurting over lack of happy marriages. And, and yet you're, you're being good to all of us. Help us understand what the word good means so that we can be drawn closer to you. Encourage us by your grace to do whatever work needs to be done the remainder of this week. To think more deeply, to weep more openly, to make decisions, to turn our eyes to you to move towards people whatever you'd have us to do and above the waterline ways below the waterline ways inside, outside, whatever uh, make us a different kind of people that will make a difference in our world because we're attractive because we puzzle people with our attractiveness 
Help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.